Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Take our Bibles in hand and once again turn to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Our text today, verses 27 through 40. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. The title of the message, The Sadducees Take Their Shot. Let's read our text today. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 27. Now there came to him, that is Jesus, some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. And they questioned him saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died childless and the second and the third married her and in the same way all seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now as we said last week, there were a number of enemies that Jesus had accrued, leading right up into his crucifixion. And this action in chapter 20 takes place the very week that our Lord was crucified. There were four primary sects of Jewish leaders at that time in and around Jerusalem. We've talked about the Pharisees before. They were the religious conservatives. They were the most prominent group. You also had a lesser known group called the Essenes who lived communally, often outside of the city environment. Uh, they had taken a vow of poverty and many of them had taken vows of celibacy. Uh, they would be similar to a monastic type of lifestyle. Then you had the political revolutionaries called the zealots. These were the ones who were most chafed by the fact that Israel had been put under uh, the auspices of the Roman Empire. And they wanted to take back their freedom by force and often use violence. And then there's the group that we're dealing with today, a group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees was one of the smaller of the groups and yet uh, they were very powerful and very prominent. Many of the ruling class came from this Sadducees sect. Many of the Sanhedrin, which were the group of 70 judges who served as the Supreme Court of Judaism, came from this group of Jewish people. And so really the two most prominent and powerful groups in Israel at that time were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were rivals of one another. They were rivals politically, they were rivals also religiously. They had very different points of view concerning the things of God. 
Now, for example, the Pharisees believed and taught the whole canon of the Old Testament to be divinely inspired. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. Of course, that's all they had in those days. Uh, they didn't call it the Old Testament. They just called it the Scriptures. And they referred to these five books as the Torah. That is the books that Moses wrote. The Pharisees believed in the supernatural realm that was not seen. That is where angels and demons abide. Uh, the Sadducees, on the other hand, did not believe in anything of a supernatural. They rejected the notions of demons or angels. The Pharisees believed in an afterlife and a resurrection. The Sadducees rejected those concepts. Now, politically, the Pharisees had their most power in the local synagogues, the local houses of worship. Uh, the Sadducees, though, controlled the temple where the people had to come for those religious festivals. And many of them had grown quite wealthy because they controlled the concessions there. And probably the thing that motivated them to hate Jesus the most is that he had chased out the money changers and the sellers, and therefore it was a financial burden upon the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in a literal resurrection, as I said, and that really is, is the crux of the point that uh, we're facing with Jesus here today. Now remember that these were rival groups, but they had come together in their hatred of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, later on in the book of Acts, used this rivalry between the scribes and Pharisees to his advantage. Paul was taken before the Sanhedrin, that group of 70 judges. This is several decades after the Lord Jesus' crucifixion. And this is what we find in Acts 23, verses 1 through 6, if you'd like to turn there. Paul is before the Sanhedrin. The Scripture says, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, that is Jewish brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do not sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law, order me to be struck. But the bystander says, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul says, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees, that is one group within the Sanhedrin were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, and I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Paul is saying, I'm preaching the resurrection of, of the Lord Jesus. And the Pharisees, of course, believed in the concept of resurrection. The Sadducees did. And so he pitted the Pharisees against the Sadducees. And so you see, before Jesus was arrested, they were rivals. After Jesus' crucifixion, they returned to being rivals. But at this particular moment of time in Luke 20, they had come together for the purpose of doing away with their common enemy, who was Jesus. Well, why would... Jesus bring them together in hatred. Well, it's because Jesus was an equal opportunity offender. As we saw last week, he did not look at the face. That is, he did not regard someone's station in life or what group they were with. He told everyone the truth. For example, he told the legalistic Pharisees that they were hypocrites. He told the Herodians that they were materialists. And he tells the Sadducees, these rationalists, that they lack understanding. Well, we've already seen in Luke chapter 20, the chief priest and the elders take a shot at getting rid of Jesus. 
Look back in verse 2 of chapter 20. They asked Jesus the question, by what authority do you do these things? That is, teach the things you're teaching and the miracles you perform and also chasing out the money changers. Remember, Jesus' response was the parable of the vine growers. That God eventually, because they had rejected his prophets and would eventually kill his son, would replace these religious leaders. And, and they said, may it never be. And Jesus says, oh, it will be. Because the cornerstone that you have rejected is going to dash you to pieces. And then once, once they realized, these scribes and elders, that they could get nowhere with Jesus, they hired others, spies. And they took their shot against Jesus in verses 20 through 22. You remember their question? We saw it last week. Master, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then, of course, Jesus, incredible and uh, remembered to this day response is, render unto Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. He, he was saying that my kingdom's not of this world. Those things in this world, like the Caesars and like these empires, are going to pass away, but my kingdom is forever. Now, in our text today, it's another group's turn to try to catch Jesus in a trap, the Sadducees. Theirs, though, is an argument from absurdity. Let's look at it again, beginning in verse 27. Now, there came to him some of the Sadducees, and it says, parenthetically, who say there is no resurrection. Now that is very important because that's going to be part of their argument. And they question him saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to the brother. Now they are right, technically. Moses, of course, is their hero. And so naturally they're going to be attracted to, to this passage that Moses wrote. And they're speaking here of a concept called leveret marriage. And in Deuteronomy, Moses tells them that if a man took a wife and the man died having no children, it was the duty of his brother to marry the woman. Now, the reason they did that, and by the way, this still goes on in different cultures of the world today, is to protect the woman. You know that in those days that women did not have a lot of rights and their property could be taken from them. And so to keep the property first in the family and then give the woman a sense of economic security, someone in the family was to take her on and marry her. Now, occasionally, because of varying reasons, either the woman did not want to marry the brother or the brother did not want to marry her, and then there had to be a ceremony so that she would be legally eligible to be married outside of the, the tribe or the clan. And so it, it was an attempt to protect the woman from those who would seek to do her harm. And so this apparently is the go-to anecdote. Now there's no evidence that this ever truly happened. And can you imagine a woman having seven husbands? She, she would be under investigation, I hope, by the fourth or fifth one. But, but it's a story they told, an absurd story, to try to prove their point. That, that the complexities of the relationships of this life would preclude an afterlife. It would simply not work according to their thinking. And so they just rejected the concept and the notion of an afterlife out of hand. And so like the Pharisees before them, they think they have Jesus in a checkmate position. He won't be able to go one way or the other, but of course, um, Jesus was not trapped. 
Let's look at his answer beginning in verse 34. Remember the question is, here's a woman that has seven, had seven husbands. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and the sons of God being sons of the resurrection. And so Jesus' answer is an angelic answer because he refers to the angels. Now he does that intentionally because he knows the Sadducees reject the concept of angels and demons. And yet it's a biblical concept. And so he divides humanity into two groups in his answer. He says there's the sons of this age, that is the here and now, the material universe. And then there's the sons of that age, that is the age to come, eternal life. Now, all of us are born as sons or daughters of this age. And by the way, he's including both sexes here. This was just a, a way of speaking. It was very common in those days. That is, if you had an attribute of a particular uh, error or thing, you were called a son of that error or thing. You remember that Jesus had two disciples who were always causing a commotion, and he referred to James and John as the sons of thunder. They were always causing turmoil. And to be called a son of this age meant that you had the attributes of this age. Well, what are the attributes of this age? Well, you get married, you have children, and you die. That's the pattern of life for most cultures in the world. And he's saying that the age to come is fundamentally different than this age. The sons of that age, that is the age to come, do not marry they do not procreate, and most importantly, they do not die. They are ultimately called sons of God. That is, they are united to God through faith in Christ. We call this the mystical union, which we are buried with Christ and we are resurrected with Christ. And as Paul says in Ephesians, we are made to sit with Christ in heavenly places. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, there's some, some points we need to, to take here from this little section of Scripture. Speaking of the afterlife and speaking of heaven, not everyone makes it. He says in verse 35, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age, that is the age to come, the age of, of the resurrection. And notice also that he says that we are like the angels in that age to come. He didn't say we are angels. I have done, been a part of hundreds of funeral services over the last 25 years, and I've heard some terrible theology at funeral services. And it's usually not the point to correct someone's theology from the pulpit, although I have been tempted. We'll often hear someone like say, well, oh, Joe, he passed away last week and he loved golf, so he's probably playing 36 holes every day in heaven. That is, their concept of heaven is, it's just a continuation of this life. And that was one of the mistakes of the Sadducees as they thought about the resurrection, as they thought about the age to come, they simply thought of it as a continuation as, as life here on earth. And Jesus is saying, no, it's fundamentally different. It's not the same thing. And, and so it's taken many people from this verse and, and they've interpreted it when Jesus says, we'll be like the angels that we're going to have wings and sit around in a cloud and play a harp, which by the way, angels aren't doing those things either. He says, 
we're like angels, verse 36, in the sense that we're not being married or given in marriage and we're not having children and we're not dying. And those things are related because what is the primary purpose of, of marriage according to scripture is procreation. Now there are other wonderful benefits for marriage but, but one of the things that marriage gives us is a legitimate way to reproduce. And the reason we need to reproduce is that people are dying and we have to reproduce to keep the population, but not in heaven because people aren't dying. There's no need for procreation. Now I know because I have felt this way too. Those of us who have happy marriages and enjoy our families don't take a lot of comfort from the fact that in the age to come, that there won't be marriage or there won't be procreation. But here, let me put your mind at ease. The life to come is going to be fundamentally different than the life here on earth, and it will be infinitely better. And I take from Jesus' words here, it's not that we're losing husbands or wives or children, but rather we are adding a multitude of family members, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so my understanding is that in heaven, the scripture says we'll know as we're known, we'll still have our individuality, we'll recognize one another, but we'll have the same sense of familial closeness with every other believer who's ever lived that we enjoy now with our natural family. And so what a wonderful day that will be, but it will be a very different kind of day than we experience today. Well, that's the first part of Jesus' answer. The second part of the answer is what I call an appropriate illusion. He alludes to something in the Old Testament, but not just in the Old Testament, to the Torah. He hearkens back to the words of Moses. That is, he refutes their own false doctrine with a passage of Scripture that they claim to revere. And so let's look at verse 37. But that the dead are raised, remember they claim there is no resurrection. Jesus says the proof that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, that is your hero believed in the resurrection, in the passage about the burning bush. By the way, that's Exodus chapter 3, when he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him when Jesus said, quoting Exodus chapter 3, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he didn't say he used to be their God when they were alive. He uses the present. He is their God. That is, they are alive in some real sense. And so he proves that this life is not all there is. And by the way, that is the calling card of rationalists of all stripes today that there's only this life, let's make the best of it we can, and it is up to us in great measure to determine our own destiny. Mark chapter 12 verse 24 gives us a little more information about what Jesus said to the Sadducees. That verse says, Jesus said to them, that is to the Sadducees, is this not the reason you are mistaken? Now here's a group of people that are used to being revered and look up to. And here's this carpenter's son from Galilee saying, you're wrong. Your doctrine is flawed. He says, I'm going to give you two reasons why you're wrong. He says, is this not the reason you're mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures and you do not understand the power of God? 
And so he corrects those two misunderstandings of the scripture and the power. The first, he addresses God's power in verse 34, when he says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor given in marriage. He's saying God is powerful enough to fundamentally change how we relate to one another in the life to come. He's not bound to just have a continuation of life like it is here on earth. He's going to change us in such a way as we no longer have to fear death or dying. And then their second misunderstanding is in scripture. And he says in verse 37, you've failed to understand that Moses believed in the resurrection. Now, um, the most important line in Jesus' answer, I think, is this at the end of verse 38, for all live to him, that is God, for all live to God. Now, what does it mean that all live to him? I think the most obvious answer is the right one. That is, no one who has ever been born is truly dead to God. I read a statistic last week that the average lifespan of the American person today is about 78 and a half years old. And uh, it's a reminder of what the scripture says that's appointed to everyone once to die and then to be judged by God. And so people have been, have been born, they've lived their days and they have died. This has been going on since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Every day we read in the papers of how many people have died that particular day. And so it's a reminder every day of our own mortality. They may be dead and gone to us, but from God's perspective, they're never dead to Him. And what I take that to mean is they have an eternal soul. Remember, this is what separates us from the animals. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God, that we have a soul as well as a body. And this body wears out and it's subject to disease and death and dying. And one day it will decompose and return to the dust, as Job says, but not so our soul. That soul is going to live on eternally. And one day those souls are going to be reunited with bodies. Now that, friends, is true not only for Christians, but for lost people as well. We call the first resurrection, those who are rightly related to him, who are going to receive resurrected bodies fit for heaven, bodies like Jesus that do not wear out and do not grow old. But the Bible also teaches that there's a second resurrection wherein the, the unrighteous dead, those who don't have a relationship with Jesus, are going to be reunited with their souls and stand before him at the great white throne of judgment. And then they are going to be judged and ultimately cast into the lake of fire. I read what uh, the response then to all of this is from those who were standing and listening to this conversation. Verse 39, some of the scribes answer, these are the rivals of the Sadducees. They realized their enemies had lost this debate. So some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Now, this is a wonderful story. And obviously it shows the deity of Jesus, his supernatural power, his ability to know the hearts and minds and men. But I think there's an application for us today. 
we live in a world, as I've been saying for weeks now, that is not fundamentally different than the world in which Jesus lived. Yes, there's more technology. They didn't have Zoom meetings in Jesus' day. They didn't have space travel. But essentially, men and women were the same. That is, they had the same problem. They, they were separated from God because of their sinfulness. And, and you have men and women trying to solve that problem in the same ways that men and women try to solve that problem today. As so I often say, that the pendulum swings to extremes. And the, the two extremes that are on display in Luke chapter 20 are legalism and rationalism. The Pharisees were on the extreme of legalism. They thought they could be made right with God by strict adherence to the Old Testament law. Many of them would not even eat a chicken's egg, which was uh, laid on the Sabbath day. Jesus said, you, you tithe upon your herb garden. That is, if they had 10 leaves of basil, one of those 10 was, was going to the temple. And so Jesus was not rebuking them for their attempts to keep the law. Of course, the Apostle Paul points this out very clearly in the book of Romans, because remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He came out of that background. He came to understand when he was confronted by true holiness, the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, that his righteousness, which he thought he had earned by being a strict Pharisee, was as filthy rags compared to the righteousness of Christ. And he saw if he was ever to be made right with God, it had to be an alien righteousness. It could not come from him. He had none. It had to come from Christ, the only truly righteous one. And so on, on that end of the continuum, you had the legalists, the Pharisees. But on the other end of the continuum, you had the rationalists, the Sadducees, who thought, well, we're just going to reject the notion that there even is a, an afterlife, and we're going to grow rich in this life and do the best we can do. And you know a lot of people, likely, on both ends of that continuum. When I was growing up, I, I knew a lot of people who were religious people, but who were legalist. They were against this and that and that, but they never really could articulate what they were for. And so, so long as they could point to others who were doing things they weren't, they felt like they were right with God. But today, I think that pendulum has swung in the other direction to another extreme. There's not a lot of legalism going on in, in the evangelical world. There is a lot of rationalism in our culture, which says we have thought our way out of the need for God. We have advanced so far in science and technology that uh, if there is a God, we have no use for him. And my prayer because we know that God works all things together for good for those that love him is one of the good things that's going to come up out of this worldwide pandemic is that it prayerfully will jar a lot of people who believe they had no need of God back into the realization that they need God every day. See, the truth is we are in no more need of God in this pandemic than we were before the pandemic. We just now are realizing it more clearly. And so these are the kind of people that we interact with every day, the people that we're called to take the gospel to. We need to understand how they think, but we also need to do what Jesus did. We need to use the scriptures because the scriptures says of itself that faith comes by hearing and hearing a message about the, the word of Christ. There is a place for apologetics and Jesus used 
some apologetics as, as he was speaking to them. But at the end of the day, what he used was the Holy Scriptures. And, and friend, if Jesus used the Scriptures to refute error and to do evangelism, who are we to do it any other way? Now, there is a verse here that I want to point out that has confused a lot of people. It's in verse 34. Jesus says, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, that is to heaven, to the resurrection, neither married nor given marriage. And people say, well, aha, to attain something is to earn it. But that's not really what it says in the Greek. It's a term that means to be, um, to, to catch hold of. That, that is to be accounted worthy. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have earned it. In fact, as, as we look at the whole of Scripture, and by the way, one of the primary principles of hermeneutics, scriptural interpretation, is that you interpret one Scripture with other Scriptures related to it. And as we look at the whole of Scripture, we know that Jesus never taught that we earn our salvation. He refuted that constantly against the Pharisees. The Apostle Paul and all the other apostles refuted that notion that you have to earn your salvation. And Paul says it most clearly when he says salvation is by grace through faith. And so the way that you are counted worthy for the resurrection is not through effort or good works or self-reformation. The way that you attain to that age is through the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ that was coming in just a few hours at this moment in time. See, Jesus came to the earth not to be an ethical example. That, that's the mistake of the Sadducees. They looked to Moses as a great ethicist. He gave us laws, and if we will all obey these laws, life will be a lot better. Well, I agree with that. If everybody obeyed the Ten Commandments, it'd be a lot better place to live. But here's the problem. No one <laughs> obeys the Ten Commandments or any of the other commandments in Scripture. That's why God had to institute government to punish evildoers lest our depravity go to its logical conclusion. And that's why Jesus said, render unto Caesars the things that are Caesars. See, humanity has a common problem whether you are on the end of the continuum of legalism or you're on the end of the continuum of rationalism or somewhere in between, you all have the same problem that I do, that we are sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. We have no ability to improve in any way our relationship with God, let alone restore it. And so God, in His mercy and in His sovereign wisdom, devised a plan in the secret counsels of God before any of us were born that at just the right time in human history, the second person of the Trinity, God's dear son, would take on human flesh at the incarnation in the womb of a virgin girl. And he would be born as men are born and he'd live a perfect righteous life for over 30 years. And then he would go to the cross as the sacrificial substitutionary lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And the only way to appropriate salvation, this age of the resurrection, Jesus calls it, heaven, you might say, is through faith in him. And Jesus said of himself in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. No Pharisee, 
No Sadducee, no Essene, no Zealot, no Republican, no Democrat, no one else can attain to the resurrection except through faith alone in Christ alone, which is a gift of grace alone. And so, friend, if you're here today and you're listening and you recognize your need of a Savior, thank the Lord. I take that to be a work of the Holy Spirit who is convincing you of sin and judgment and righteousness. And I call upon you today to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to humbly confess that you're a sinner, that you are spiritually bankrupt. Scripture says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those that recognize they have nothing to offer God. And you come to him on his terms and you say, Lord, have mercy to me, I'm a sinner. If those Sadducees had bowed before Jesus that day, he would have forgiven them. If those Pharisees had bowed before Jesus, he would have forgiven them. And friends, if you'll bow before Jesus today, in contrition, in repentance, he will forgive you. You'll understand him now to be who he is, the Lord of all creation. And you will be joined to him forever and ever. His righteousness will be imputed to you. And one day when you die, and friend, you surely will, as I will, you don't have to despair because he's promised to one day give you that resurrected body fit for heaven, which like the angels will never die. Let's thank the Lord for that truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who always said what is right. Truly, Lord, you have spoken well. Not only did you speak well to the Sadducees, you spoke well to the Pharisees and all the other groups of Israel. Lord, you have spoken well in your Bible. We thank you for this scripture, Lord. You have revealed who you are through it. And Father, you've revealed your plan of redemption, that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Lord, I thank you for hundreds of my brothers and sisters who are watching today, who know you as Lord and Savior. They've been born again. And they look forward as I do to those resurrected bodies. And Father, I suspect there are people watching today who don't know you. Maybe they uh, are convinced that they can do enough good deeds to please you. Or, or maybe, Lord, they've even got to the point that, that they reject anything of a supernatural nature out of hand. And yet, Lord, you're able to save any. And I pray that your spirit would do his work of convicting those lost souls of their personal sin and guilt before you, of your judgment that is coming and the righteousness of Christ, which can be theirs. And Father, I pray that many, in the sound of my voice, would come to saving faith. And when that happens, Lord, we'll give you all the glory, the honor, and the thanksgiving you're due. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, Visit us online at fbckeller.org.